it's been um it's been quite a ride uh i mean it's definitely by an order of magnitude the biggest story that i've ever uh worked on um in terms of its significance and the attention that it got um uh, i'm not quite sure uh, any other stories i worked on what the most traffic story was but we clicked past 10 million views on that story um a couple months ago Welcome to the Love Journalism Show. I'm your host, Darren Samuelson. Today's guest is Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter for Politico and my former newsroom colleague for more than a decade. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, Darren. It's great to be here. So we have a lot to cover. I, uh, I guess I want to start by introducing you to my audience here. And um, if you don't mind backing up and just kind of telling uh, us why you ended up in the world of journalism in the first place. Um, well, I, I've kind of been interested in journalism, um, as long as I can remember, um, exactly why I was interested in it. I'm not entirely sure of that part. I'm not that, uh, clear about, but going all the way back to high school, um, I just found it very, um, intriguing. I was mostly interested at that time, I think more in broadcast journalism than in, uh, well, what was then called print journalism, and now I don't know what we call it. But um, uh, I, I was fascinated by uh, like 60 Minutes and shows like that. Um, and when I was in high school, I did a couple of um, summer internships at the one of the NPR stations in Boston that people may have heard of, WBUR, um, and just found it, uh, even though it required me to uh, set my alarm for 3.30 a.m. and to be at the studio at 4.30 a.m., I really thought it was, uh, I thought it was great. And um, in high school as well, I kind of founded a uh, crusading kind of uh, muckraking uh, newspaper. And I'm not sure if the scandals that we had were really that big, but uh, we made it seem that way. Has your journalism career uh, been everything you imagined it would be? What's been the biggest surprise, uh, would you say? You've been doing this for a long time now. Um, well, I don't, I, I mean, it's, um, it's been quite a, a ride. Um, I guess uh, what's a little bit weird for me, uh, at least for that era, is that I kind of gone back and forth between some outlets that were, very, very well known, and others that were less, uh, less well known, um, and a lot of the time, the reasons for that was um, sort of personal uh, satisfaction. Uh, you can do a job at a place that's very prestigious, and it can be quite a sucky job. Uh, and the the opposite of that is also true. Um, there are other places that one can work um, and have a job that's very, very satisfying, even if it's not. Uh, the most famous place in the world. And so I've kind of weaved my way back and forth uh, doing a few different things um, and have, uh, you know, probably uh, probably uh, taken the less trod path a couple of times, but um, I think things are going okay. And, and um, I think the most important thing for anybody is that, you know, you want to have a job that um, where you really enjoy what you're doing. Um, if you, you feel like you're doing something for a long period of time because it's a stepping stone to something else, uh, I'm all in favor of 
doing the hard work and investing the time, but you really need to think about whether that really is a stepping stone to something else, especially in this, um, in this era that we live in. Um, there's not a lot of people looking to just sort of hand out, um, uh, you know, hand out some kind of credit for you toiling away on something that you thought was important. You've been covering the law for as long as I've known you. Um, I've drifted in and out of your career, and we 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 were uh, partners there in 2012 on the White House beat, and then uh, partnered back up again there for the entire Mueller period. And, and yet, you've been a legal reporter this entire time. I, I'm just curious, how do you stay motivated to you know to stay on the same beat as long as you have? And I say this as someone who's drifted in and out of the beat on on several occasions, um, and maybe coming back in, I find it a little bit. Uh, refreshing to return to the beat, but but you're there nonstop, day in and day out. What's what is that like? So I mean, o- over time, I have covered a bunch of other things. Um, I've had times in my career where I covered pure, uh, pure hardcore uh, politics. Um, th- there was a year where I spent uh, on the road um, uh, almost every day of that year uh, covering Bob Dole's presidential campaign in 1996. Um, and there've been phases also where, like you, I think I was doing sort of more, uh, standard white house coverage. Um, for whatever reason, I've always kind of gravitated towards the legal stuff. I've been interested in it since, um, since college or earlier. And, um, whenever I've had a beat that has some element to it, that's legal, I've tended, um, to dwell on those issues. And, and I think the, the th- strange part about it, Darren, is having spent so much time in Washington is like how everything has become so legal. Like there isn't really a beat at this point that doesn't have a significant component to it that is legal. Um, and so whether you're a legal reporter or not, um, this is one of the things I've found fascinating here in Washington over the last 20 years is how um, it seems to me that a lot of the big battles um, that we have nowadays are played out in the legal system, sometimes more so than in the political uh, system. Uh, you know, whether that's due to the gridlock on Capitol Hill on a lot of things, whether it's due to increased partisanship, social media, um, uh, a lot of it is due to decisions by people at both ends of the spectrum that um, financially and politically it makes sense for them to try to pursue their agenda in the courts. Um, I can't give you a number, uh, you know, to go along with it as to like what percentage of politics is now played out in the legal arena. But it just strikes me that it's a lot more than it was um, when I arrived in Washington, which is about three decades ago. What's the legal, how has the legal beat changed in recent years? I mean, in, in the last two, three, four, five years, you've been front and center on, on so much because of the way the White House uh, investigations played out. Um, has it gotten harder to cover with more people gravitating into it? Um, or is it just, uh, yeah, what's, what's that like to just see more reporters gravitating into a beat that you've been, you've been a part of for a long time? Well, I mean, I kind of think that um, as with many other things in Washington, there's the, um, the Trump period and all other, all other periods. And, um, you know, I used to say to people that I thought having lived through the Clinton impeachment, that that was as crazed and hectic as it could possibly, um, get, you know, with P 
people being staked out in their driveways by TV cameras and not knowing from one day to the next if the president was going to resign, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to me, when I was in my 20s, which was when that happened, I just thought, gee, that is the most draining and exhausting thing to have to cover for months on end. And maybe it's age, but looking back on it, I think it was about uh, 10% of the velocity of living through the the Trump uh, the Trump era and and the way from the day that Trump arrived in office, um, the gas pedal on all of these legal things was just floored, like stuck to the floor. I mean, when we arrived, what was it? A week later, when they implemented the the travel ban slash Muslim ban policy. And you figure one, two people would like file, of course, the ACLU is going to sue over it. Well, like 20 different suits were filed over it in the course of like 48 hours, you know, this kind of stuff. So it's like, it's, yeah, it's sort of what went on before, but it's totally on steroids and over the top to a level where it's almost hard to conceive of. And, you know, that, that continued at that pace, just all the way through the Trump period as when you and I were working together most recently, you know, on things like the Paul Manafort case and the the Mueller investigation, that all becomes part of it. But even setting the special counsel stuff aside, there's just continuously fighting every piece of um, Trump's agenda. And and I don't want to, in court, and um, I don't want to suggest that it, like, it it was um, entirely new because uh, obviously there were a lot of aspects of Obama's agenda that were, were fought in court. But just the, the, the over-the-top nature of it in terms of everything being litigated and not litigated by one group or one person, but by many groups um, at the same time across the country is just something that I had never seen uh, before. Um, and we're still seeing it now um, with Biden, I think it's a little more manageable. Maybe we figured out how to cover it, or maybe um, there aren't quite as many Biden things going on that are generating as much uh, litigation. So it doesn't feel quite like the tsunami it did, um, the tsunami that it did under Trump, because uh, that was really something. And and as you know, Darren, it's not done. Like uh, a lot of us thought when the election was over, well, that would be the end or something like that. And uh, no, it, it continues. And obviously Trump's running again. But even setting that aside, the the um, sort of aftershocks of his presidency in the legal sense um, continue to this to this very day and and probably will continue reverberating, uh, you know, in the months after this episode is uh, is released. I'm just curious, how much news do you think you consume in the course of a day? Um, what is your day like, too? Um, well, how much? I don't know. I mean, I spend, I, I see a lot of things. I still get a lot of news from uh, Twitter, from the people and the organizations that I follow on Twitter, uh, which includes other reporters, but also includes a lot of people um, in the advocacy sphere and the legal sphere. Um, it includes the various groups that we were talking about that um, litigate all kinds of things uh, against the uh, in favor of the administration or against the administration or some of them against both um, 
the Trump and Biden administrations, because we probably should point out some there's some interesting policies that Biden is actually continuing and being fought over, especially in the immigration uh, uh, sphere. So I think I get a lot of it from that. And by that, I mean, I don't just watch the stuff go by on Twitter. I use that to curate what I'm reading. And then I click through to the different um, the different uh, websites. Um, and then we have a lot of internal discussions on Slack uh, with my other colleagues. Um, we have a small handful of people that fo- focus at least some of the time, if not all the time on legal stuff now. Um, but then also there's things being called to my attention by uh, other reporters that um, are on our politics team or on our Biden team or are covering issues uh, that tend to be highly uh, litigated like, like um, immigration. And then I also have a fair amount of um, interaction depending on the issue with our Congress team, because uh, you know, some of these things like, for example, January 6th, uh, obviously a massive uh, legal enterprise, uh, the investigation, the more than a thousand prosecutions and us trying to cover that. But there was also a big chunk of that that was pursued by uh, the, the uh, House of Representatives and, and congressional investigations. So, so um, you know, the, I, I think that's sort of the fire hose of, of intake. I don't, I no longer get any print newspapers um, here at the house like I used to in, in prior years, but, uh, but that, you know, I, I see all that stuff, I think probably in a more timely way um, online. If you don't get print newspapers, how does, how does Deep Throat communicate with you? Uh, we still use the planter method, Darren, moving the planters around. So uh, that's still a tried, tried and true method. Even if the internet service goes out, you can move your planter. <laughs> what are what are some misconceptions? Do you think that the that the public has to like what you do and how you do your job uh, of being a legal reporter? And, and and how do you explain those to to the world? Or how would you like to explain those to the world? Um. You know, I think probably the number one misconception, and I don't know if this is for legal reporters per se, but in the era that we live in, like, I do think there's people that constantly think that, um, you know, they believe that a reporter must wake up in the morning uh, looking to stick it to some particular figure in the political sphere. Uh, And, you know, I think People often think that because they wake up in the morning thinking they'd like to stick it to a particular figure in the political sphere. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of things that motivate uh, reporters, I think. Um, but most of the good ones, that's not one of the things that motivate them. And now some of them may, some of those things that motivate them uh, may not be laudatory or, or positive things, but I don't think most of them get up like, oh, I really like to find a story to stick it to Trump today, or I'd really like to find a story that embarrasses Biden or embarrasses the Supreme Court. Um, I just think that most reporters, that's not the way they think. Um, And so a lot of people, I think most people in Washington kind of understand that because we live in a town where people are around journalists and journalism all the time. And and I think they understand the factors that, that influence the stories that people work on. But I think beyond Washington, people don't understand it that well. And I'm often asked when, um, you know, there are people, believe it or not, Darren, outside Washington and outside the United States that have not heard of Politico. 
And, um, and they'll often ask me, oh, is that like a right-wing publication or a left-wing, you know, what political, uh, what is its political outlook? And I try to explain to them, well, it doesn't really have a political outlook. And, you know, in my view, although I'm not on the business side of the enterprise, as a business, it doesn't really make sense if it, you know, political would not, it would not be to its advantage to sort of cast its lot with one side or the other in the broader ideological debate, because it would seem like you're throwing away half your audience. So um, usually I can convince them of that. Um, sometimes they just stare back at you because they're used to reading, you know, some La Liberation or something like that, some kind of French, you know, newspaper that has been committed to some particular cause or outlook for, you know, since the French Revolution, and they just can't process what you're saying. But um, so I think that's probably would lead on the list of um, the list of mis- misconceptions. What's your top piece of advice for a journalist just busting their way into this business right now? Um, well, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, doing more than uh, more than studying. So um, I, I don't I, I have a bachelor's degree and that's all all I got in terms of uh, creden- credentials. So um, I think that you have to find a way to get out there and start reporting on a uh, a daily basis as much as you can. I think one of the beauties of uh, the era that we live in at the moment, um, meaning the internet age, is that, you know, people should give a moment to think about, you know, 30 years ago, what it meant to go work in a small TV market or at a small newspaper versus what it means today. I mean, if your work is going up on the internet, um, if you can find catchy or interesting stories or do things that are inventive, um, it can be noticed. Uh, it spreads through social media and through, um, you know, one of the beauties of, of the internet is we can sit here and I, you know, when I work on different legal stories, um, we can draw on stories from around the country because you can see what, what's being reported in a way that, uh, again, it may seem hard for people to believe, but when I started in this business, you couldn't really do that. Um, one of my, early jobs uh, at ABC around the same time I was working on the Dole campaign was to round up the news uh, from different newspapers that were being reported about the, the, the presidential race. Um, and I don't think people realize how hard it was to do that. You know, before I started doing it, it was done largely by fax machine. And around the time I started was when the uh, different um, newspapers started putting their um, articles online. But only one or two put them on the internet. Most of them put them on proprietary services like AOL and Prodigy and things like that. So to go through and try to find out what had been written on Topic X was actually a fairly complicated um, undertaking to try to do it in a timely way. I think if you wanted to wait a few days, you could find most of the stuff on Nexus. But rarely does a reporter want to wait a few days. And so one of those early things, um, this was sort of a predecessor to what later became known as the note, uh, but uh, was to, to dial into all those services at 11 o'clock or midnight and st- just pull down the stories related to the campaign that they were doing. You know, the, the hotline, which people may have heard of, ha- you know, did that on a mar- far more comprehensive basis, trying to cover not just the presidential campaign, but almost every 
Senate and congressional campaign in the country. And that was, that was essentially the service that they, um, that they offered at, at a time when that was, you know, like I said, was, it was, a, there was a lot of elbow grease had to go into trying to do that. Um, and, and to do it on the scale of the hotline did, I can't imagine that you really did need a large, uh, a large staff of people, but a lot of people that were doing that remain very active and prominent people in our business today. I want to back up. You, you were just saying you, you have an undergraduate degree, so you're not a lawyer. You have no law degree, correct? I am. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I um, majored in government and I, um, you know, have at various times pursued a few different uh, Freedom of Information Act lawsuits when I was at some smaller employers uh, where I had a little more latitude to just do some wackier things. And so I did a few lawsuits on my own pro se as they, as the, as they say in court, but I'm not a, uh, I'm not an attorney. Obviously I've spent a lot of time around attorneys and, uh, I've read more legal briefs and legal filings and set, probably sat through more court hearings than, um, I would think 90% of people in the legal profession have, but, um, but no, I'm not, um, I haven't been to, haven't been to law school. I think I took one seminar class in constitutional law when I was as a government, uh, as a government major. Um, and you know, I've, I've read a fair amount of stuff also over the years about, um, you know, how, how, how these things, uh, are argued. And, and so, you know, you pick up a certain amount along the way, you know, in California, I don't know if they still do it, but at one time they allowed people to become members of the bar, uh, by basically, um, clerking in an office of an attorney for like five years. Um, I don't think many people, I think that was the way it was done in the old days. And I don't think many people take advantage of that. Nowadays, most of them just sign up for like an online law school or something like that. But um, there's still some kind of a, um, uh, you know, uh, a way to, to get to practice somewhere um, just by being an understudy to a lawyer. I feel like I've been uh, in that capacity for quite a long time. So since we have parted ways as journalists working together, you've uh, become kind of famous for uh, a certain story in, uh, in your career. I wonder if you could share with uh, the world, what is, what has that been like uh you you know we've talked about it uh, offline a little bit here and there, but I'm just curious, you know, what what would you share about the experience of breaking perhaps you know one of the biggest stories of 2022 uh, with respect to getting uh, a look at the Roe v. Wade decision before uh, the Roe v. Wade decision was was meant to be seen by anyone in the world? Well, it's been um, it's been quite a ride. Uh, I mean, it's definitely by an order of magnitude, the biggest story that I've ever, uh, worked on, um, in terms of its significance and the attention that it got. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure uh, any other stories I've worked on what the most traffic story was, but we clicked past 10 million views on that story, um, a couple months ago, um, which is a, it's a year old now. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's been, um, I wouldn't say it's been life changing, but it's certainly been a change uh, in terms of internally at Politico. It's been a, a real uh, 
coup for us, I think, because it, it, it drew a lot of positive um, attention. I think news organizations often draw attention for the wrong reasons because of internal drama or layoffs or uh, restructurings or uh, people who quit to um, found new ventures or whatever. And so just to have a what we thought was a pretty clean uh, uh, story in terms of, um, you know, they're not being there's controversy, obviously, around the decision that the Supreme Court was about to make and then went ahead and made. Um, but um, aside from the first few hours, there wasn't a ton of uh, critique of our role in it. So it felt nice to be credited for um, a clean hit on that um, and to sort of ride uh, ride the wave with it. That said, you know, there's been elements of it that have not been the greatest. Uh, obviously, you get a certain uh, number of uh, weirdos that come out online after a story like that. You also get a certain amount of blowback and pushback. Again, as we were discussing earlier, you get people that are sure you're putting out a story to advance this agenda or that agenda. Uh, you get people who start publicly guessing about who the sources or source or sources might be, um, oftentimes in a way that's very uh, damaging to individuals who may have nothing whatsoever to do with the story. I mean, it, I guess it's fair to say most of them have nothing whatsoever to do with the story. So uh, so that part, I think, is a, a unfortunate sort of um, sort of downside to, to it. But um, overall, it's been it's been positive um, for me. It's been positive for my my um, co-author on the story, Alex, Alex Ward. And and, you know, it allowed us also to put together a fair amount of other coverage that we sort of package it together with um, across the range of reporters that Politico has covering things like healthcare and politics, you know, it turned out to be, I think, a bigger political story than any of us really realized um, at the moment that we sort of pushed, uh, pushed the button on it. And that also continues to like reverberate. And then, you know, I've tried to keep up on covering its impact at the court because I do think it's changed the court in a number of different ways. Hmm. Uh, two questions there. One, how has it changed the court? But backing up, I mean, how many years do you think it will be before Mark Felt comes forward and, and tells us uh, the Mark Felt version comes forward and discloses uh, who who leaked this to you guys? Um, you know, is it going to be 2050, 2060 when we're when we're talking about this again? Uh, I, I hope it's not going to be 2050 or 2060 because I'll be awfully old then. But um, I, I think I generally subscribe to. Um, uh, Mickey Kaus's faster filer thesis. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it basically uh, contends that history just continually speeds up. So however long it took for Mark Felt um, to come uh, out of the woodwork, um, you know, for something similar uh, that came along in later years, it should take a fraction of that. Um, I, Without really having any data to add to the equation, I think that that's just my gut instinct that um, things don't, um, stay hidden for, uh, decades like they used to, but I don't know of anything imminent that's, that's going to emerge. I mean, you may know, I'm sure you do that the court conducted their own effort to try to figure out where this information came out 
or came from, and uh, essentially ended up inconclusive uh, that they couldn't say to a certain level of uh, certainty uh, who or where it came from. Um, in the subsequent weeks, uh, Justice Alito, who was the author of the draft opinion that we obtained, uh, said that he thinks he knows who it was, um, but he didn't identify that person, and he was a little vague about um, about why the court didn't didn't do that, uh, or or if he has some unique information um, that they've all been a bit cagey about that whole situation and the the words that um, Alito said. I think are probably the only words that have been said about that inquiry, besides the official ones that were put out on paper by the by the court. And how has the Supreme Court changed since since the leak and and uh, the fallout of the of the opinion for, for, for? Well, I mean, I think it's changed in several ways. Um, the the first way is the way the justices sort of look at each other and and their staffs. Um, I do think there's more suspicion. Um, you may remember there was a public um, forum of some sort that. Um, Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas spoke at uh, a week or so after the leak or a couple of weeks after the leak. And he was really embittered and inflamed by it and, and sort of went on a rant about how things are not like they used to be in the old days. And he seemed to be saying that things were better before, um, before uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, took over about uh, 17 or 18 years ago. And he seemed to say that the justices most of them were not that friendly anymore and that the, you know, the clerks were generally like political backstabbers. It was really a remarkable, um, a remarkable appearance. And there's still sort of signs, I think, of that kind of uh, strife, um, strife and distrust uh, uh, within the court. Um, They've obviously taken a lot of um, steps, you know, that that investigation that was inconclusive in result doesn't mean it didn't lead to anything. I think it led to a lot of changes. That place in so many ways runs as if it's still the 1950s. And you can you can sort of use that paradigm to think about, you know, their IT security, their physical security, um, the way they handle the press corps, anything. If you want to come up with a default as to how they're going to deal with most things, think back to the 1950s because it's usually about that way. Um, and so that I think it has prompted them to move in a little more, I mean, obviously, look, it, it contributed to an atmosphere where they put barricades around the court and basically um, extended the closure of the building, which had basically been shut to the public because of COVID for prop- maybe almost a year longer than they would have uh, otherwise. It, it, it was um, in that respect disruptive. Now, some of those things probably would have happened when the decision came out anyway. We probably simply accelerated them by reporting on it sooner um, than people um, expected. But, you know, uh, so I think that's that's part of, uh, part of what you see um, going on. And I think it even contributes to some of the discussions around ethics that you see the justices um, almost painfully having in public over the last... Uh, year or so about, you know, um, people had said, well, was it a crime to release this? Well, no, but it was unethical. Well, then people are like, well, where's the rules of conduct? And they're like, well, we have the clerks read something or sign something. And we're like, what about the justices? Well, there's nothing for them, you know, and, and this discussion goes on 
uh, goes on to this day. And I think we, you know, these were all things that people had discussed over the years, but I think we definitely fueled that by, um, by putting out that, that story. When you were, you know, at the point of hitting the, uh, the publish button back when, when uh, you were sitting there with the draft opinion and uh, could you have envisioned as much ripple effects and consequences? Uh, were you thinking about where we are now at that moment, or has it kind of surprised you the way that the fallout has, has played out? Um, it, it, it has surprised me a little bit. I mean, a couple of things surprised me on a micro scale. Um, I thought we were, I, I was bracing for us to be involved in like an extended hangout period where we would be sitting out there with the story and people would, you know, uh, it's almost like being in a dunk tank or sitting on a diving board. People would be throwing stuff at us and we would have very limited ability to respond, um, partially because usually somebody challenges you like, well, why do you say X, Y, and Z? And then you can give them the reasons. Well, because of the sourcing of the story, there were only certain things we could say about why we were confident it was true. Um, but there's other reasons we think it's true or thought it was true that led us to publish it um, that I couldn't discuss on cable television or on radio interviews or, or podcasts. So I was a little concerned that, you know, if people are like, well, I don't believe it, you know, at that point, it becomes almost like a religious question. Like, like, well, what am I supposed to say if somebody says they don't believe it? Like, you know, well, good luck. You know, like we, we do believe it. We wouldn't publish it if we didn't think it was right. Um, but it becomes sort of an article of faith. So that said, given my reporting, my history of reporting at the Supreme Court and over the years, um, I thought that their response after publication was going to be the same as their response before publication, which is to say no comment, because I would say 90% of the inquiries that we send to the court's uh, public information office, that's the the response. Um, and so uh, I, I thought that would be the court's um, stance, that they would simply say, well, we're not, uh, we're not going to get down in the muck with these you know, riffraff that are, you know, trafficking and draft decisions and so forth. Um, we're going to stay up on a higher plane and, and just pretend like this is not happening. Um, that's not what the court did. Um, less than 24 hours later, they, uh, the chief justice issued a statement saying um, that, that, that our, the opinion we published, the draft, was in fact a genuine draft copy, that it wasn't a final thing and could still be adjusted, and that it was unfortunate that it had been released, et cetera, et cetera, and that he was going to look into it. Um, but I didn't expect them um, that I, I didn't expect them to say to say that. So that was quite surprising to me. Um, and, you know, in a sense, I thought it was good because it allowed the story to move on from sort of is this real or not? Not that there were a lot of people saying it wasn't, but uh, we didn't have to be in the awkward position of trying to authenticate the document publicly because the chief justice had done that. Uh, and then we can move on to discuss the substance of what was in the opinion and what the impact would be on people, uh, on people's lives if this decision came out and what we thought the state of play was um, inside the court. The one other thing I would say that it has done uh, that I also didn't think was going to happen is we had an editor who worked on the story who came to uh, me and Alex after around the time of publishing and said, I, I think this is going to change the way the court is covered uh, permanently. And my reaction, because I'm a skeptical reporter type guy, was, 
okay, you know, and I just kind of like rolled my eyes and walked on, walked on by because like, oh yeah, sure. It's going to change the way the courts covered, whatever. Like, okay, maybe. Um, That said, with the hindsight of a year, uh, it it seems like there's a stronger case to be made for that claim um, than against it. I mean, we've seen so many outlets beef up their coverage of the court. We've seen a lot of news outlets um, publicly declare that, that that the way they were covering the court before probably was not quite correct. It was a little too deferential and a little too literal, and probably the court needs to be covered more as a political institution, the way the White House and Congress are covered, and not with the degree of sort of reverence that, you know, whatever they say about why they're doing things, that that must be the way, the reason they're uh, doing it and we shouldn't question it or try to look behind the curtain. It does seem like uh, there's a consensus that that type of coverage is not um, is not enough. It's not that you shouldn't do that kind of coverage. We got to cover the decisions that come out. We got to cover the arguments and the briefs and they have real world impact, but it's not enough. Just like when you cover Congress, just covering the bills that are passed or going to the hearings is not enough. Like, you know, as we all know, what would you say, Darren, 50, 75% of the stories that come out from the Hill are based on interactions with members in the hallways, not what goes on, you know, at at the hearing where somebody, you know, nowadays they just make a scene about one thing or another to get on TV or whatever, and then they walk out. Um, The real action is elsewhere. And so um, obviously we can't on a daily basis penetrate that at the Supreme Court the way you can in Congress or way we try to do at the White House, but we should at least try. And there seems to be a consensus around that. I think our story contributed to that. And that's probably the part of the whole thing that I'm I'm proudest about. You guys were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize uh, for your coverage. What was that process like to be, you know, sitting there waiting uh, and potentially being awarded, you know, the highest journalism honor? Uh, You guys came up as runners up, but uh, congratulations on that. But what, what was that? What was that like? Um, so, uh, I'm not sure I've ever watched it before. I am, uh, I'm not, I I don't know how long they've been like webcasting it or how that worked. I I have some vague memory years ago of that. They used to like on the AP wire or whatever, they would send the alerts, like one, one award after the other or something like that. Um, you know, uh, I think that again, the degree of reverence that you, accord to these things has a lot to do with your um, work history and your background. Um, So I spent the first, uh, let's say, about um, 12 years of my career working in television, where, you know, obviously people have heard of the Pulitzers, uh, not just for journalism, for books and things along those lines. But... um, you know, then I also have colleagues and, and uh, bosses and editors who came up the print journalism route, where if you work at one of the major newspapers um, like the New York Times or the Washington Post or L.A. Times, they tend to gather around every year to find out who which of their projects have made it or which ones have not made it and so forth. And I think that gets ingrained into people as sort of like a, a ritual um, so somehow I'm not fully in sync with that ritual just cause, um, uh, of where I'd spent the early years, uh, of my, um, career. Uh, you know, I wasn't that involved in, um, 
I'm not sure exactly what we said to them or how everything was presented. There's other people that Politico, at Politico um, uh, that worked uh, that worked on that. Um, like I said, I think the impact of the story um, is really hard to dispute and it really was seismic. I mean, it, it wasn't only that, um, you know, all the TV news channels like cut over to it uh, when the story came out. Um, it, it had a massive political impact um, even before the decision uh, arose. And then as we've already discussed, I think it, it impacted the way the court uh, is covered. So that's the part I'm most focused on. I think, um, you know, obviously there there are other awards as well. Um, we we cleaned up pretty well in some other prominent awards, uh, the Toner, the Poke, and um, a White House Correspondents Association Award named for Catherine Graham. Um, and, you know, and I will say one of those or a couple of them also recognize the fact that um, this was actually a fairly complicated story. Like, uh, it, it's not simply the fact that, oh, there's an opinion, just post the opinion online. Like, um, we had to be very, very confident this was real. And there are a lot of people out there uh, that are looking to trick reporters and embarrass them and to trick news organizations and embarrass them. There are certain websites I won't mention here. Um, and I've reported on some of them, um, that, you know, use their first amendment rights or maybe even go beyond them in, um, you know, trying to, uh, put reporters and news organizations into an embarrassing, uh, predicament. And, uh, we didn't want to publish a story if there was, a 1% chance or a 0.1% chance that that was what was going on. It's not just a question we didn't want to. Like, it would have been very bad for Politico if this story was wrong. Uh, set aside whether it'd be bad for me. It would have been bad for me. But it would have been very bad for Politico. And and I think worse than, um, you know, other uh, other news organizations have, have face-planted in dramatic ways. Um, the Washington Post and the New York Times both had reporters that were working for them that were just serially fabricating things and and it eventually caught up and it was like highly embarrassing but it didn't pose a i don't think an existential threat to the news organization it was just embarrassing uh and but, you know if this had been wrong um it, it would have been very very bad uh for politico and so i think you know i would hope when people think about the story um they think about everything that went into it contextualizing it, verifying it, um, and, and those sorts of things that, uh, required painstaking efforts that I really can't still can't detail at this point. Mm. And apparently you're, uh, how are you going to win the Tony to get your ergot, uh, for, uh, for journalism here? I'm not sure how you do that. I think that, that like my kids told me that, um, that it's something like that, like an, uh, like an EGOT, but, um, <laughs> I'm not totally sure. I don't know if the metaphor completely holds up because you've got all those journalism prizes that are what, like the Peabody's and stuff like that, that are only given out for, um, for broadcast, uh, was the DuPont I think is broadcast also. So it's a little complicated, but Hey, you know, maybe maybe I've got one or more of those in my future and I can I can round the bases all the way. Hmm. 
let's let's touch on the the biggest uh, potential story uh, of the rest of this year among many big stories going forward but the possibilities of future prosecutions of president trump uh we've already got the case in new york but uh without diving into the weeds of any one in particular i'm just curious how are you preparing for you know what what seems like it's going to be a you know another year or two of of really intense court coverage uh are you are you ready for you know what we saw during Mueller, but but perhaps supersized times five to ten with with trials in New York, Washington, Fulton County, who knows where else? But I guess those three to to begin with. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we were talking about how the Trump period when he was in the White House, it seemed like that was uh, the most intense you could ever get. Then that was punctuated at the end by what led up to the January sixth riot at the Capitol building and the. You know, people have sort of forgotten now, but there was a whole period of right of litigation of 50 lawsuits or whatever um, that uh, uh, that led up to that um, that riot. Uh, and again, each time we think, well, it can't get it, it can't become a bigger scene than this. This is a, this is the peak. Now we've reached the zenith and it's proven wrong each time. Um, you know, if Trump is. He's already been charged in New York, and we saw what a zoo that was like on the day that he went in for his uh, arraignment. Uh, it looks very likely like he's going to be charged down in Georgia with state one or more state charges related to the uh, alleged tampering in the 2020 election count and the phone call that he was on with the state officials trying to, quote, find votes uh, down there. Um, and I think both those cases are big. The, the, the Georgia one is more significant. I think the New York one is easier to dismiss for a variety of reasons we don't have to get into. But part of it is just that it involves tawdry. It has a tawdry aspect of paying hush money to a porn star. And so I think if you go back to the Clinton era uh, kind of metaphor and framework, you say, well, wait, if, if it's... Um, when they there's a famous uh, Sen- late Senator Dale Bumpers gave a speech for Clinton on the floor where he said, when they say it's not about sex, it's about sex. And so Trump can always use that defense. And I think there's a certain percentage of people that will just be like, I don't care about anything he did with a girlfriend or a wife or whatever. It's has I have no interest in it. it's none of my business. Um, so I think it's pretty easy to just wipe that off the table. Um the Georgia one is more serious because it essentially accuses him of trying to steal the um, 2020 election. Uh, you know, he, it does seem to me he's got some decent defenses, which is that he was on the phone with lawyers the whole time. And it, it's a usual kind of Trump defense, which is, you know, is it possible to obstruct justice with 15 people in the room? Like, well, I don't know. Like, it's 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 a difficult thing, and it does seem like a defense. Like, well, I just assumed my lawyer would speak up if I was doing anything wrong, and of course they didn't. So, um, so that's going to be a big uh, a big deal. That said, there's something about a federal indictment that uh, draws more attention, and it, it it also becomes more of a direct clash um, if you want to think about it in kind of a um, uh, the way people around the world would interpret it, it becomes a direct clash of the Biden administration versus Trump. Uh, it, like the kind of thing you see in various countries around the world where you have different political parties using the criminal process to try to wrestle for power. People who want to paint it that way will be able to do that. You know, with the Georgia case, obviously the Fannie Willis, the DA is a Democrat. 
but she's not part of the Biden administration. So it's not quite as acute. And so, um, you know, and obviously special counsel Jack Smith is has a degree of autonomy, but it's a huge thing. I mean, you know, uh, just charging a president or a former president is unprecedented. Charging them with something as significant as trying to steal the previous presidential election is even more unprecedented. But I think to have a direct clash where the Justice Department is prosecuting um, not just a former president, but a can- current candidate. And as of this minute, the front runner for the like Republican Party uh, nomination is just, just something that we have not just not seen. We haven't even come cl- close to to seeing something like that. I mean, uh, you know, there was a chance that Nixon would have been prosecuted after he left office, but nobody thought he was going to run for office again. I mean, he he essentially left office in disgrace. Um, So to have the leading candidate for the presidency uh, or challenger to the current president um, being prosecuted at the same time, if that's what happens, um, uh, you know, we're doing our best to gird ourselves for it. We've staffed up a little bit um, and we're trying to follow every uh, twist and turn of what's going on, but there's no way we're going to be fully prepared for it. And I'll also say, I don't think Washington is fully prepared for it. I mean, I don't think people have come to terms, you know, they're, they're talking about, I saw, I think it was yesterday or this morning, a Wall Street Journal story about basically downtown Atlanta um, planning to basically shut down for several weeks at the beginning of August because the DA down there has given sort of a time frame when if she charges Trump, it'll happen. Um, nobody's talking here in Washington that I know of about like what parts of the city we're planning to shut down if there's an indictment returned uh, against the former president. Maybe people are talking about it and they aren't talking to us about it, but but uh, it's it's going to be quite, uh, quite an event. And I, I hope the powers that be are giving some thought uh, logistically as to how that will work, because it's not just going to be an ordinary day. <laughs> you can say that again, times about a million, I, I imagine. Uh, let me ask you this to close out. Uh, this is the Love Journalism Show. Uh, on a scale of one to 10, Josh, give me your sense of one to 10, 10 being you love it totally, you're ready to you know run off in a lope, one, uh, you're ready to get a divorce. Uh, how would you size up your, your state of the media right now and, and why? Um, are, now, are we asking about my experience in the media or what I think about the whole industry as a whole? Because those might be two different You're, questions. Oh, I'd, I'd like your experience in the media. How are you feeling oh, about the media? Um, I mean, I think uh, I, I'm pretty happy doing um, doing what I'm doing right now. So I would give that um, uh, uh, like a nine. Like um, I, I, I find what I'm working on to be super interesting. There's no shortage of stuff uh, to cover. And, um, uh, I generally get the latitude to cover the stuff that I, um, that I want. Um, you know, if we're talking about the industry more generally, um, I think I'm probably down, uh, around a five or something like that. I mean, I think, um, we're a little spoiled in Washington that there's a lot of news organizations and a lot of reporters, um, and a fair amount of resources to cover, the things that are happening in Washington. Um, once you get outside uh, the Capitol, it becomes more challenging. Um, you know, I often mention to people how when I was 
growing up in Boston, um, there was uh, all the courthouses, uh, county courthouses around the city of Boston had a Boston Globe reporter assigned to cover that courthouse. Maybe there were a couple where somebody had to double up, but there were three, four, five, six people that covered the um, all the doings in court around the city. Um, and then there was somebody else who covered federal courts and what was happening in Boston itself. And, you know, over the years, um, as uh, Metro newspapers have shrunk in most places, um, those positions have gone down and down and down. I don't know what it is right now. The last time I checked, I think it was one and a half people to cover um, all of the court system. Um, and and I feel like that's gone on in a lot of places. It's not just courts. It's, it's just it's a daily struggle uh, economically, um, you know, I think to run these journalism enterprises um, in the, especially your midsize uh, cities and smaller. Um, and, and I think that's bad. It's not just bad for reporters. It's bad for those cities. Um, you know, there've even been a few instances where when these news organizations start to collapse, suddenly the politicians that they've been hounding and dogging for years are begging somebody to come in and and finance them or keep them alive because there's an understanding that um, it's more than just an economic enterprise that um, is lost when um, these news outlets succumb or become just sort of a, a skeleton of their former of their former selves. So that's why I have to pull the number down um, pretty substantially because it's obviously a um, still a period where um, a lot of the journalism. Uh, business is is uh, is is struggling, and so I think that's something we all like need to keep need to keep in mind from our um, highfalutin perches in Washington D.C. Well, everyone here has gotten a chance to listen to what a, a typical Darren Josh conversation would be like in the course of a day. We'd probably be way more specific, talking stories and 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 how we'd be attacking the day. But uh, and names, we would probably use more names. <laughs> we're protecting them uh just because uh you never know uh, yes, here, to uh, protect the innocent and the guilty well josh all the best uh you got a, a a heck of a job in front of you uh in terms of covering uh, uh everything with respect to the legal community going forward but thank you so much for joining the love journalism show josh okay darren the pleasure is mine thank you <laughs>